It must be Thursday. Welcome to Learning Unwrapped, the podcast about your most important life skill, learning. My guest today is a multifaceted woman who has served children and adults well throughout her career in the world of education and through her love of the arts. She was recently honored with the fourth annual Judith A. Hoffman Humanitarian Award for her years of contributions to the field of education, the highlights of which are designing innovative high schools and urban centers, international studies, assistant superintendent of an urban district, assistant commissioner of education in New Jersey, promotion of the arts, serving on countless boards, and co-authoring the book, Beloved Educators, Women of Color Who Inspire Us, which is what we are here to talk about today. Allow me to introduce Dr. Penelope Latimer. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Penelope. It's so good to see you again. Thank you. Same here. And thank you so much for generously offering to interview me. I could make, I could create 14 podcasts on you, Penelope, and it probably still wouldn't cover everything you've done. You know, I was fortunate enough to meet you as part of the group that calls yourselves the formers, all former public school administrators, state level leaders, whom I had the pleasure of interviewing last year on Learning Unwrapped. And again, just last week when we offered up a tribute to one of your members, Willa Spicer. Today, I want to talk about you. I was struck by a book you co-authored in 2014 entitled Beloved Educators, Women of Color Who Inspire Us. Quite honestly, I think it should be required reading for all new teachers. Tell our listeners, what inspired you to write this book? What inspired me was the company of other women of color who were educators, and we were all working together and had been working together for a a number of years. As a matter of fact, um, each person had been on a staff with me when I was at Rutgers University and um, directing the Rutgers Institute for Improving Student Achievement. And we often talked about the women of uh, who supported us and who were our early mentors, teachers, and the women who still inspired us. And so one day I threw down the gauntlet and said, listen, we should really write. You know, we go to so many conferences and we hear so many people talking about things that we already know. Why don't we write about the people who formed us, who inspired us? Uh, That's how it started. We quickly came up with a list. There could have been many, many others but each of us felt that we could only write about one person <laughs> and do it justice. So that's why the list is as it is. The other unique thing is that these are African-American women educators writing about African-American women educators. Mm. And at the time of the, of the writing, everybody whom we wrote about was living. And so we were able to have a launch tea and the, um, the women in the book were all living and able to come. And we actually presented them with their roses and had an audience to see them and to be inspired by them. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I know because um, you wrote about Dorothy Strickland. Yes. And she passed away just a couple of years ago. Yes. Yes. Dorothy Strickland um, passed away. And also... My second grade uh, teacher, Bessie Wade, who is featured in the book. Mm, she she fabulous recently, too, yes. 
that was, I believe you wrote about uh, Bessie and you walking to school, right? Um, well, Bessie, um, yes. It talked about how she would walk me to school in Asbury Park. Yes, because she lived just a few uh, streets away, which was, um, for some, that was an interesting opportunity when your sure. educators lived in the neighborhood with you. Sure. I recently was at a a production of a play at Carter Theater, and I, as I was walking to my seat, I saw Jean Gloria Jean Tunstall, who is featured in the book. Right. So, um, yes. That was uh, a moment of joy. And you and your co-authors wrote about seven women of color who yes. contributed to the world of education. You yes. were one of the women presented in the book as well. One of your colleagues yes. wrote about you. Yes. Uh, each of the chapters share about your lives and the lives that each of you impacted beyond your own. Do you find a common thread among these women that caused them to prevail? Yes, that that was very interesting for us. First of all, um, one of the common threads was resiliency. Each woman really talked about the place where, how she even came into the profession. And all of them were at times when it wasn't so common to be an educator in the places where they found themselves. So, so resiliency was one thing. And the, the other was that they really broke the rules of um, <clears throat> boundaries for the, the youngsters, the learners, and themselves. Each woman was a, a woman who had the courage to really make those personal uh, relationships with the students who were in their classes. And they, t they talked about, you know, their community involvement and how knowing their community and uh, embracing the families of, of youngsters in their classes year after year really defined their uh, methods of, um, of education. So it, it's interesting because that's a part of what um, Gloria Ladson-Billings now and Geneva Gay, these icons of today, I talk about when they talk about culturally responsive education, they talk about knowing the communities of the people who you are teaching. So important. And I'm struck by resiliency because Dan Tani, who's an astronaut, was on my podcast um, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, I guess. And we were talking about, he was talking about the new astronaut. And we were talking about the fact that the skills that are needed are skills such as persistence and resiliency, mm -hmm. et cetera, which we used to call the soft skills, but they're not soft skills anymore. Those are the hard skills. I mean, yeah. fundamentally, anything that you want to look up, you can find on the internet, it's at your fingertips. But those skills, being able to be resilient, being able to build relationships, those aren't the, the skills that are uh, tested on the standardized tests, but they are so important because it's what makes the difference. Right. We put them now in, in a body of learning we call socially emotional learning, SEL, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, in this book, for instance, when I write about Dorothy Strickland on this point of resiliency, Dorothy Strickland, who she, she became such an icon for us nationally, right? And internationally as the, the leader of the International Reading Association and a, a beloved professor. 
but Dorothy Strickland, when she was a senior at what was then Newark State and was ready for her senior practicum going into her practice teaching, we called it right then, a number of school districts wouldn't accept a, a teacher of color. In her chapter, I talk about that. And she, she um, revealed that to me um, in trust because it was a story that she hadn't told to people before. To their credit, the leaders of the School of Education said, well, if Dorothy Strickland can't come, you know, then none of our students can come to your school district. And, and she felt bad about that, but um, they did find other placements for the whole group. But right from the beginning, you know, today's times, um, I think students of color, any student and faculty members would, would be quite shocked to find out in the state of New Jersey that this was a, a condition. That is so true. And that's why I think what was so powerful about the book was reading the the stories of these women who launched their careers in the 1950s and 1960s when the civil rights movement was in the forefront and the women's rights movement hadn't even taken shape yet. So you're talking then about African-American women who are forging their way. Um, what would you say were some of your personal triumphs as a woman of color throughout your career? Well, some of definitely some of my personal <clears throat> triumphs were the opportunity to um, to have innovative practices. Right from the beginning, though, I was trusted with um, with the quality of work because of who my mentors were. So when I was 21 years old, I was assigned to Georgian Court College, and I was the the assistant director of the Educational Opportunity Fund program. Um, which brought the first group of African-American girls onto that campus. But also when I was 25, I was in the doctoral program at Graduate School of Ed at Rutgers and the civil disturbances of the, the riots in New Jersey had taken place. And the Graduate School of Ed had agreed to help the New Brunswick Public School District to have some new, newly formed programs and opportunities at the secondary level. Uh, and Dean Milton Schwebel called some of us together in his office and said, this would be a great um, doctoral dissertation for, for someone in this group. Think about it. Uh, a few of us applied to design a demonstration high school on the campus of Rutgers University, and I got the opportunity. So at age 25, I designed what was then called the Gibbon School and which lasted for um, about eight solid years. And we were on the Gibbons campus of Douglas College, part of Rutgers University. And the, the whole practice was to be innovative, the traditional curriculum, but tilted um, with a delivery style that was uh, more engaging of students and more connected to the community. We did that work well, and we were written up in um, newspapers and magazines frequently for the innovative curriculum. A number of years later, in around uh, 1990, 92, I was on the board of Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital, and we were talking about the underserved numbers of people of color entering the healthcare professions. 
And so I said, well, the pipeline for that is early interventions of, of schooling. Would we ever consider having our own high school on the campus that was connected with the public school district? The chairman, the board of the hospital at that time, Harvey Holzberg was the CEO. Everyone loved the idea. So we then pitched it with also the New Brunswick Board of Education. And very quickly, um, within a, a year or two, we had the New Brunswick Health Science Technology High School, which is located on a cutout portion of the campus of what is now Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Hospital at, in New Brunswick. And so you have the New Brunswick Health Sciences Technology High School still thriving on the campus. And it's a unique high school in the state of New Jersey. One, it's the only one of its kind that's on the campus of a teaching hospital and where the curriculum is articulated to mentoring experiences, summer employment of students and the rigorous um, pathways for uh, the hidden careers within the health professions, meaning more than just physician care and nursing care. Right. You know, every time I speak with you, I think it's too bad our paths didn't cross sooner because my whole approach to designing student-driven classrooms would have resonated so well with you and the work you were doing. And we probably could have had a lot of fun together. <laughs> probably so. Now, yeah. another passion that we share is for the arts. And uh, I know in my in my spare time at one point, I, I started an art gallery and absolutely loved oh. delving further into, in okay. that case, the fine arts. The arts were very important to your parents, as described in a chapter about you. And as a result, they're very important to you. Now, you have a powerful story about your study of ballet and the racial barriers that you experienced. Would you mind sharing that and talk about how that shaped you? Well, uh, certainly, and and, um, indeed, I'm glad you mentioned, um, because at age three, you know, no one makes their own decision. So it was really the vision of my mother, Mary Agnes, um, and the support of my father, (laughs) James, that I studied ballet. But they set a standard within our family, because I want to make it clear that it wasn't just me. Um, I'm one of four children, and my mother set a standard that each of us would would need to study a musical instrument. You could select your instrument, but you would need to study a musical instrument. So along with that, though, we were also registered for dance education, including my brother, who was registered for tap. That was a short period time for him, but he was, he was registered and he studied for certainly a year or so. The study of ballet began for me very early and I tell people the first five years, I was the worst one in the class. But the point is that at that time in the city of Asbury Park, it was courageous for a white woman to accept a black child into her dance studio. And Dorothy Tolan did that for me. Um, And then she did it for others as well. But at the age of 11, I was strong enough as a ballet dancer, a ballet student, that uh, Dorothy Tolan made a telephone call and made arrangements for me to audition for, uh, to study at the School of American Ballet in New York City. 
And I remember very well that train ride into New York with my mother and my and my grandmother. And um, I was accepted to study at the School of American Ballet on the very day that I did the audition. Then we came home and there was the family conference because the discussion then was, how are we going to pay for this? And also, I was to go into New York City the first year, three days a week. I went every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. And then for the second and third year, it was six days a week, um, sometimes taking two or three uh, classes a day. The, um, the racial barrier was that at that time in the school, there was one boy uh, who went on to have a marvelous career. That was Arthur Mitchell who George Balanchine sponsored and gave the funds for the establishment of Dance Theater of Harlem. But Arthur Mitchell had a brilliant career. And there was another Black girl from New York City and myself. As I came into my early teen years, I got the consultation from the, the studio. Probably, maybe I wasn't that good, but the message was that you know, and so now it's 19, so this ancient history, 1958, 59, 1960, 61. And there were no Black males or females in the court of ballet. Right, uh, right. And this was New York City Ballet Company that we were talking, talking about. Now, there, there had been other women of color who had marvelous careers in dance, but not in continental United States, to my knowledge, in any classical ballet company. They were soloists or they were in some other form of dance. Carmen de Lavalade is one of the ones who comes to, to my mind. <clears throat> there were others even in ballet, but not New York City Ballet Company. So that was reality um, for me. I continued, however, to study ballet and to even have formed a, a company of my own for a very short period of time. Ballet is, um, is definitely a favorite art form. What I did with that in my career was there was an opportunity for me working with the board of the Princeton Ballet School. And I met some of the marvelous leaders of the school at the time, Rachel Gray, Nancy McMillan, these were women who were officers on the board of Princeton Ballet School. I was chairing the uh, Crossroads Theater Company, but I was also assistant superintendent of schools in New Brunswick. And we formed a relationship through the arts, um, our leadership of these different companies. And, and the Princeton Ballet School was going to establish a school in the city of New Brunswick and Nancy McMillan and Rachel Gray had conversation with me about this. And I suggested to them that they might want to have a relationship with the public schools. So again, advocacy for youngsters and families. And what happened was we, um, I was able to uh, also talk to the Board of Education and we established a program that was a collaboration between New Brunswick Public School District and the Princeton Ballet School, and it was called Dance Power. One of the students in the program actually named the program Dance Power because that's how they felt when they were in class. I'm proud to tell you that this past fall, the 
Princeton Ballet School received uh, an award from the, the Association of Dance Educators when they came to New Brunswick for a national conference. And it was in recognition of sustainability. The Dance Power Program is the longest standing uninterrupted arts integration program in the state of New Jersey, where students in the public school system um, receive dance education from teachers from a professional dance company, the Princeton Ballet School, for 35 years uninterrupted. Uh, A couple were hired by the Princeton Ballet School. And even this past uh, year, the lead role in the Nutcracker was danced by a student who was um, a part of the Dance Power Program. So That's fantastic. Fun. You must be very proud. I am. <laughs> I am. And I mean, clearly you and the other educators uh, that are highlighted in this book were, were the trailblazers because you were right there on the heels of the civil rights movement, yeah. a, part, a part of uh, shifting you know, what the landscape looked like in, in the fields, in the arts, in education, et cetera, mm-hmm. which, is, which is very powerful. Now, if you were to write a sequel today to include women of color who are inspiring others today, who might you include? And, and I'm going to say you should probably just share one because, you know, you don't want it to be like you, you, you mm-hmm. left somebody out. So just mm-hmm. who pops into your head? Mm-hmm. Well, um, it, of course, there there are many, many people, and there are people with national reputations. Actually, the, the, the woman I'm going to name has a national reputation. So I'm going to name um, Wanda Blanchett. Dr. Blanchett is the dean of the Graduate School of Education at Rutgers University. I'm going to name her because of her position and how she uses her position as the Dean of the Graduate School of Education at Rutgers. Um, that's a position of influence. It's a power position. And it's a, it's a position that requires a great deal of multifaceted knowledge and the ability to work well with a wide variety of people. So she has the faculty at the Graduate School of Ed. She has educators and educational leaders throughout the state of New Jersey. And she has the influence of the higher echelons of Rutgers University for the quality of um, reputation for that graduate school of education. So I think she's done some terrific work. She has tilted the focus of the faculty and the students who, who will be studying for advanced degrees at the Graduate School of Education to include um, a commitment to issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, social justice issues in um, in public education. Mm-hmm. So it's not just acquiring a, de- a degree, a master's degree, um, a doctorate with some esoteric research. It has to have some direct application. Right. So I hope I put that idea in your head about a possible book then. <laughs> If not, she might. Uh, Now, as I've said before, I believe that every new or aspiring teacher should read this book uh, because it has wonderful lessons and insights and offers an historical perspective. And of course, today, as a result of the pandemic, more teachers are retiring and fewer people are entering the field of education. So what would you say, Penelope, to high school students to inspire them to enter the field of education today? Well, 
I love to say in speeches that I give, education is the career path that informs all other career paths. So if you want to have a frontline opportunity to inform other people, to help people um, to achieve whatever it is that they aspire to do, being an educator is your route, is your pathway. Also, being an educator um, connects you always with the issues of um, society. You're in a helping profession when you're an educator. You're helping families to realize the goals, the dreams of their children. You're helping individuals to realize their potential and their goals. And the field of education is, is a field that requires you to be a lifelong learner yourself and to be open to working with all types of people to to continuous have energy and resiliency and a joy about life, a joy about um, the potential of individuals and of us as a society. Education, the career path that makes all other careers possible. And it is a wonderful career path, and there's so much you can do with it. Yes. Um, you can yes, go in any of a number of directions. Yeah. I had gone into administration and then because I had developed this model for uh, the learner active technology infused classroom, I ended up with so many schools asking me to help them that I decided, well, maybe I just ought to start consulting. <laughs> so back in 94, yeah. I guess it was, I left my position in public school and just took off and uh, never looked back and have mm-hmm. been designing. Um, I just ran into yesterday an article that was written by a researcher on the Learner Active Technology Infused Classroom. She studied one of our schools in mm-hmm. Florida. And I was like, well, look at that. But, <laughs> but it's like you just yeah. keep forging ahead. And so yeah. as you said, you can do so much with education. I just want to mention that indeed my experience with that was all the international invitations that I received. Mm. And one of the pinnacle ones, well, two, one was the state of New Jersey asking me a couple of times to uh, to go to Haiti and to work with the Haitian uh, market women in basic skills because I taught French language and culture. So that's right. We didn't say that's actually more where fluid. There. Right. <laughs> And Johnson and Johnson, when Jim Burke was the CEO of J and J, I went to South Africa and met South African educators and informed them about the greater potential in education. So you never know as an educator where the paths may lead. Exactly, uh, and then my studies in China and in Japan, you know, with the Fulbright Scholarship. So these are uh, were surprise benefits of staying in the profession and keeping interested. Okay, so let's unwrap the learning. Penelope, you've you've accomplished so much. What's next? What's next is, and you make me smile because I have been nudging my group, group of friends called the Formers, mm-hmm. a group of highly accomplished women, dedicated women uh, educators, we need to be writing. I would love to be writing, doing more writing for publication um, to inspire people who are in the profession and people who are aspiring to come into the profession. I think we have something to say. 
about uh, resiliency, about legacy learning that we're still doing. So writing is next. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. I'll, uh, I look forward to you coming back next year and talking about your next book. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Penelope, for being here. Uh, again, you have such a multifaceted life and, and career, and I just appreciate your sharing just a snippet of us uh, of that here with us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. It was just wonderful. Well, that's a wrap. I'm glad you could join me. I hope you'll subscribe, like, and share this podcast and help me spread the word about the power of learning. Till next time.